Welcome to episode three of Byzantium and the First Crusade. This is the last episode in this mini-series which looks at the consequences of the First Crusade for both Byzantium and the wider medieval world. Let's start with the words written by Anna Komnena in one of the greatest literary masterpieces of Byzantium, the Alexiad. The stream of time, irresistible, ever-moving, carries off and bears away all things, both deeds of no account and deeds which are mighty and worthy of commemoration. Her words convey a sense of uneasiness with the world of the late 11th century, and well they might, for the scale of conflict between 1068 and 1099 was unparalleled for its time. Not since the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century or the rise of Islam in the 7th had such an intense conflict been fought over so wide an area. Its like would not be repeated until the Napoleonic Wars and the First World War. The changes wrought in these years were profound. Byzantium was not destroyed, but it was broken as a great power. The foundations of modern Turkey were laid, but most important of all was the creation of a conflict between Islam and Western Europe, the echoes of which can still be heard today. For nearly a century after the First Crusade, the Franks controlled the Holy Land. There were five Crusader states headed by the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and together they were referred to as Outre-mer, the French for overseas. In the early decades of the 12th century, the lack of a united Islamic opposition continued to favour them. The Seljuk Empire was shrinking, beset with problems in its eastern territories, and there was no wish to mount a major campaign against the Crusaders, such as Alp Arslan had done against the Byzantines. The Egyptian Fatimids didn't cooperate with the largely independent Seljuk emirs in Damascus, Aleppo and Mosul, so that the Crusaders could still pick them off relatively easily one by one. This allowed the Crusader states to flourish in the decades after the capture of Jerusalem. For Byzantium, the position was less rosy. Although it was saved by the First Crusade, its recovery was certainly not a restoration to what it had been before the Battle of Manzikert. The new front line with the Turks was 500 miles west of Manzikert, and the Anatolian heartland of the empire was lost forever. Cappadocia became home to Turkish tribes, whose settlements paved the way for the Islamization of one of Christianity's original core geographies. Most important of all, Defeat at Manzikert drove the last nail into the coffin of its centuries-old professional army. Thereafter, this army became almost entirely reliant on mercenaries and ceased to be a military power of any real significance. Byzantine weakness was compounded by a failure to maintain good relations with the newly created Crusader states. Alexius Komnenus's biggest mistake was to underestimate the potential success of the First Crusade. Not surprisingly, he had no idea that it would achieve its objective and result in the creation of a powerful Frankish presence in the Levant. 
While there is no doubt that he was responsible for initiating the crusade and dealt with its leaders very skillfully to begin with, for example by securing the oaths of loyalty from them in Constantinople, his abandonment of the crusade at Antioch led to the rise of a movement targeting him as a traitor. Led by Bohemond, this anti-Byzantine movement was propagated by accounts of the First Crusade that became widespread in the West, in particular the Gesta Francorum, or the Deeds of the Franks, recounted by a knight in Bohemond's army to a cleric who wrote it in Latin, became the main account of the First Crusade. It was poisonous in its portrayal of Alexius and spread false stories of his connivance with the Turks, such as his supposed delight with the slaughter of the People's Crusade, sparing the Turks at Nicaea and then failing to help the Crusaders at Antioch. Growing pressure on the Crusader states led to further alienation between them and the Byzantines when Edessa fell to resurgent Islamic forces in 1144 the response from the West was for another great crusade, the Second Crusade, led by the two most powerful monarchs in Europe, the German Emperor Conrad III and the French King Louis VII. Their armies struggled to make it through Anatolia, suffering heavy casualties at the hands of the Turks, and when they reached Outremer, they only managed to launch an attack on Damascus, which failed miserably. After this, they returned home, the whole expedition deeply disappointing compared with the success of the First Crusade. One of the consequences of the failure of the Second Crusade was a hardening of opinion against the Byzantines. The French King Louis VII found Byzantine forces in Anatolia unwilling to help his troops, and on his return home, looking for a convenient scapegoat, he blamed the failure of the Crusade on the Byzantines, even claiming that Byzantium should be attacked first in order to establish a reliable link with Outremer. His words were ominous indeed. Outremer's decline accelerated the division between Byzantium and the West. This became critical when Saladin finally succeeded in uniting Egypt and Syria against the Crusaders and defeated King Guy of Jerusalem at the pivotal Battle of Hattin in 1187. The bulk of the Crusader forces were killed or captured. Outremer never recovered from this defeat. Saladin's troops poured into Palestine and Jerusalem was recaptured after a five-day siege. The Byzantines showed little sympathy. The Emperor Isaac Angelus even sent a letter of congratulation to Saladin and requested that the holy places in Jerusalem be restored to Greek Orthodox control the request was granted. The response to the fall of Jerusalem from the West was one of outrage and desperation. Pope Urban III is said to have died of shock. His successor, Pope Gregory VIII, issued a call for arms that was to be later known as the Third Crusade. The story of this expedition has passed firmly into English folklore since it was led by King Richard I of England, the Lionheart, accompanied for a shorter time by the French King Philip II. 
Although the German Emperor Frederick I also joined the crusade, he was drowned in the Salaf River in Anatolia, leaving Richard and Philip to fight alone. Landing at Acre in 1191, where King Guy of Jerusalem was desperately holding out against Saladin, they pushed back Saladin's forces and raised the siege. Although Richard and Philip quarrelled so that Philip, who was also ill with dysentery, returned to France, Richard marched out of Acre and defeated Saladin in a pitched battle at Arsouf. But he didn't recapture Jerusalem, although he advanced to within a day's march of the city. Judging that his army wasn't strong enough to take the city, he made a five-year peace treaty with Saladin on condition that Catholics would be allowed to enter Jerusalem on pilgrimage. Richard and Saladin are said to have had great respect for each other, although they never actually met. Richard saved Outremer from complete destruction. Not only did he defeat Saladin, but he also secured the coastal ports of Acre, Tripoli and Jaffa. En route to the Holy Land, he had also captured Cyprus from the Byzantines, a further sign of the decline in relations with Byzantium, but a useful asset for Outremer, since the island provided a secure base from which to supply the coastal cities. Nevertheless, Jerusalem was firmly back in Muslim hands, and Pope Innocent III began preaching for a new crusade to recover the city. Yet sentiment was now almost as hostile towards the Byzantines as it was to the Muslims, and in 1204, Venice contrived to redirect the Fourth Crusade away from its target of Egypt towards Constantinople. An army of Franks, transported in Venetian ships, stormed the city's seawalls from its most vulnerable side, the Golden Horn. Having broken through the great chain that had blocked this narrow isthmus for centuries. The city was then subjected to three days of terror. Although its inhabitants were Christian, the crusaders showed little mercy. They indulged in an orgy of rape, slaughter and pillage. The great cathedral of Hagia Sophia was ransacked. The orthodox priests were humiliated, if not actually killed. A prostitute was made to sit on the patriarch's throne. Constantinople had never been subjected to this kind of destruction before. It was the only city to have survived intact from the ancient world, and now its magnificent treasures were looted. The Venetians delighted in taking as many of them back to Venice as they could. The Fourth Crusade destroyed Byzantium, just as the First Crusade had saved it. After the catastrophe of 1204, what was left of the Byzantine ruling class set up three successor states, Trebizond in the east, Epirus in the south, and the strongest, Nicaea, close to Constantinople, became the de facto Byzantine government in exile. Byzantium had not been completely destroyed, and indeed it would even recover Constantinople in 1261, but it was no longer an empire and no longer of much significance. It would struggle on for nearly 200 years as a city-state until the Ottoman Turks finally put it out of its misery in 1453 when their cannons breached the city's ancient walls. The Turkish conquest of Byzantium began nearly 400 years earlier on the battlefield of Mansikert, 
finally reached its long-awaited conclusion. The gift of hindsight can be dangerous. It is all too easy to suppose that Byzantium was doomed at Mansikert and that the First Crusade was bound to succeed. In fact, the exact opposite is probably true. The First Crusade was a wildly unlikely success, only really made possible by the fragmentation of the Seljuk Empire and the unity of purpose of the Crusaders, together with the military genius of Bohemond. Equally, Romanus Diogenes's epic struggle to stem the Seljuk onslaught has today been largely forgotten. In particular, the Battle of Mansikert is clouded with misunderstanding caused by the diatribes of Michael Sellers. For the Battle of Mansikert should not have ended in defeat. The neglected commentary of Michael Ataliates provides compelling evidence that Romanus's attempt to revive the Byzantine army was a serious undertaking, although the army that he marched Mansikert wasn't the deadly fighting machine of 10th century Byzantium, its newly trained Cappadocian regiments still massed in disciplined ranks that filled their enemies with fear. Such, at any rate, was the view of the Turks. Alparslan's offer of peace on the eve of battle was prompted by fear of the Byzantine army, not something, for example, felt by Kilij Arslan when he faced the Crusaders at the Battle of Dorylaeon. So why did Dorylaeon end in victory and Mansikert in defeat? The answer is that the armies of the First Crusade were united while the Byzantines were divided. Romanus Diogenes was brutally betrayed on the battlefield by Andronicus Ducas in a few minutes that changed the course of history. But this was far from inevitable. Had Romanus had the foresight to imprison or exile the Ducae, he could have been the hero who saved Byzantium. And the stream of time would have flowed in a new direction. Thank you very much for listening, and if you'd like to read more about these events, then please do look for my book called The Byzantine World War, which is available on Amazon and at most retailers. Thank you. (laughs) 